So this morning we're talking about Mother's Day, of course. This is one of my favorite services to do because I love the way that moms love us, and it's um, really fun to honor them when we do this. So um, one of the things that I think is amazing about a mom is that you have a lot to do, and you do it really well. You keep people alive all day long. It's really good. It is impressive. And I tell you what, I've seen dads when moms are gone. It's a rocky day sometimes. <laughs> I've had kids delivered here with no shoes and half a diaper. I don't even know how that happened, but it was truly half a diaper. The back was gone. And I went, where is it? And I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know, he said. I don't know. Is mom gone? Yeah, she's busy all day. Enough said. That's enough. I, all I need to hear. <laughs> Dads, we love you. You do a great job at lots of things. Um, <laughs> maybe just not putting full diapers on babies all the time. Um, but I think that it's, I think that it would be, I, I think you would agree with me when I say that being a mom is challenging sometimes because there are a lot of expectations put on you as a mom. I think that's true for dads in a lot of ways too, but um, one, one world where expectation comes from is social media, online, right? Pinterest. Pinterest is, it started as a great idea, right? It's a place where you can put up ideas for other people to be inspired, not inspiring overwhelming. Have you ever gotten caught in the Pinterest fog where you're scrolling through all the pictures or recipes or like house ideas or party themes and you just go, who's doing this? Like who has time to turn their house into a fairy wonderland overnight? Who's doing this? <laughs> right? So have you ever seen these Pinterest fail pictures? Have you ever heard of this? There are whole websites devoted to Pinterest fails, and I want to show you a couple of these. So this first one right here was a <laughs> supposed to be a cake that's a minion. It's not. I don't know. It's not. It's just not. This one is some cake pops that are for Easter. That is the saddest. That might be a, a Good Friday cake pop. It is not an Easter cake pop. <laughs> that is a sad cake pop. Here's a cake that is for um, a child's horrific birthday party, apparently. Um, that Ariel has seen better days, I think. That's a sad cake. Now, sometimes we, uh, I've, seen, I've seen Pinterest fails where people were trying to set up these elaborate photo shoots, right? This is a really good one. Where... <laughs> trying to get your kid to do what they do in the picture. That doesn't, nailed it right there. That's it's no good. So this is what a mom is facing, right? The expectation versus the reality of what's happening out there is pretty rough. So what I want to suggest to you today is that when we compare ourselves to other things, it's not always a great idea. It's not always um, useful to us. And in fact, I would say, that comparison is even the enemy of contentment. That's what we're going to talk about today. So um, there are people in the Bible that compared themselves, and I think that in all of those situations, we can see some positive and some negative. So we have Hannah in the Old Testament who desperately wanted to have a child. Now, I think that part of that was that she knew that God had placed motherhood inside of her, and she wanted that so badly. But another big piece of that is that she 
saw all the women around her having babies. That was the expectation. That's what you did in that culture, was you had children, and she didn't. And so it was really, really hard for her. The Israelites left Egypt, horrific oppression, slavery, death, destruction, and they got to the middle of the desert, and suddenly someone goes, we should go back. It was, I think that was better. This is bad. We, all we eat is bread, dirty bread. We should go back. That's a pretty, pretty muddy comparison, I would say, to say that slavery and oppression is better than God providing for you something you've never known before, right? That's a pretty rough comparison. Now, David is a guy who chose not to do that. He chose when he was a young guy, you know, the famous kid's story that we always tell of the David and Goliath and the big giant and the little guy. It's like the underdog story of the Bible. It's great. But when he gets to the battlefield and realizes Goliath is out there, Saul says, oh, you're going you're gonna to fix this? Here, look like me. Put my armor on and go out and do what I would do. And David goes, mm, yeah, I don't think I will. I think this doesn't fit me. It's not, this isn't how I, go, how I work. I'm going to take my stones and my slingshot. I'm going to go and do what I do. I'm going to not choose to look like you in this. He also, incidentally, chose not to compare himself to his enemy, which I think is important for us to note. He didn't go out and say, well, I'm teeny tiny and he's really big and bad, but give it a go. He said, I killed a bear. I, I could do this. What's he? Some guy. God's bigger than that. He chose not to compare himself to the things in front of him. And I love that as an example for us. I see a couple of problems with comparison in people that I see in my own life, in the world at large. Um, the first problem that I see with comparison is that when we compare ourselves to somebody else, it automatically attaches value, right? So here's an example. When I was in school, I think when you were in school, you probably took a test. That's okay. You, you took a test that looks something like this. Which picture does not belong with the others, right? We've got a banana, grapes, pear, apple, broccoli. Now, I would say broccoli never belongs anywhere, ever. Ever. Just don't do it. Just get rid of it. But in this picture, which of these five doesn't belong? Which one? The broccoli, right? It's, see, I'm right. It's not supposed to be there. But why? Why doesn't it belong? Because it's a vegetable, not a fruit. Okay. So there is some literature out there. There are some theories that say when we give kids test questions like this, we are setting them up to become bullies. <laughs> See, it's the broccoli. It gets you. It's bad. <laughs> no. Why would that be true? Because here's why. In a picture like that, the thing that we're using to differentiate is that one thing is different than all the others, and thus, it doesn't belong in the group, right? So then a kid translates that into, well, you look different than me, so you don't belong in my group either. Or you act different than me, or you speak differently than me, or you learn differently than me, so you don't belong here. Now, I... I am not an educational scholar. I have no PhDs in anything. If Jeremy were here, he would probably tell me that that was bogus or it was real. I don't know. But I'm not here to argue that theory. I'm here to argue the concept that when we teach a kid to compare, we are now attaching value one way or another to something. Okay? So that's problem number one. 
Problem number two, <laughs> it kind of builds on that. When we have given something value, it then goes both ways. So I'm, uh, I'm cruising around Facebook and I see a picture of a family on their first day of vacation. And I think, gosh, I wish I could make my family look like that, riding so nicely in the car and every kid has their little coloring tray and nobody has spilled a drink yet and nobody's crying and nobody's hanging out the back window. This would be a good vacation, right? My family doesn't look like that. It's hard for me. We don't travel well together, right? So now I'm comparing myself to another family. What happens when I have found something that makes me feel less than? My tendency is going to always then be to look around and find something that I feel better than. This is a slippery slope for us, my friends, because this turns into, well, at least I'm not as bad as that lady. Look at her kids, she's screaming at Walmart. She can't even get her under control, right? Now we have essentially taken away the aspect of community and we've created in our minds a hierarchy. Now I remember when I was in second grade, um, <laughs> I, my teacher used to always teach us these uh, ways to remember words, right? And one of our spelling words was hierarchy. And do you all know what hierarchy means? means creating a system of like the best all the way to the worst. So she said you can remember it by saying it means I have a higher Archie than you, right? And so in my mind, I always remembered that because it was always a competition. It was always this goes higher than this and I'm better than you at this. Even though you're, you're better than me at something else, well, I'm better at this. So now I've, I've taken away an element of community which says I'm good at this thing but guess what? They are good at that, and I'm not. So I'm glad they're part of my community. I'm glad they're in my church. I'm glad they're in my family. We take that away when we begin comparing and wanting something that's not us. Um, the third problem that I see with comparison is that it limits what's possible in our minds. And more specifically, I think it limits what we believe God is capable of. So... If you compare yourself to another family, so we'll take the vacation example, right? You see that picture of another family as the best it could possibly be. And so you think, well, if God's going to do anything, that's what he's going to do. But you have no idea what God has in store for you. It may be a world different than what you've ever seen before. So some of you, many of you know that I have another job besides here. I work at the hospital. I'm a nurse in the ICU, and we see kids who come really, really sick all the time, especially these trauma kids that have been in car accidents or ATV accidents, summer's coming, so kids do crazy stuff. Just keep them inside, everybody, keep them inside. It's, they don't need to go outside ever, and they don't need to be on anything with a motor or an engine. <laughs> they can, it's fine. But I see a lot, I see parents standing at the bedside of a sick child, and they ask me a question that just destroys me every time they ask, they say, have you ever seen a kid with injuries like this get better? And that causes a lot of trouble for me because number one, that's asking me to speculate on what God might do for this kid. I don't know what kind of miracles he has in store, but I know he has something for this child. I know that. But I also know I've seen kids die there. And I know that God's with them. And I know that that doesn't change the fact that God is good. And it doesn't change the fact that he has a plan for that kid's life. So that's a hard question for me to answer. But more than that, it's hard for me because they're asking me 
one tiny person in a whole huge world to say, can God do something? And if he can, you must have seen it already. I don't want to live in a world like that. And I don't live in a world like that. God is way bigger than anything I've seen with my own two eyes. And I've seen him do a lot of great things. But he can do more. His word says, I'll do more than you even think or imagine. So I don't want to say to a parent, well, I don't think your child will get better because I haven't seen that happen. No way. I don't want to be a person that lives with only the things that I've seen as my standard. So this is where comparison gets us into trouble. It sets a limit on what we see that God can do. Um, who does comparison affect? So the short answer I would say is everyone, right? The long answer is everyone, <laughs> right? Everyone, but especially our kids. So how many parents have you ever had a kid repeat something that you said and it might have been embarrassing? Right? They hear it all. I see two hands, and they're both the same couple. That has happened. Okay, good to know. Um, they hear it. They see it. They are like hawks when they want to know what to do and what's acceptable. They absorb everything from their surroundings, like it or not. Right? And so sometimes I think that it's easy for us to assume that we're being great examples to our kids, and when we mess up, they're too young to figure that out. My friends, they are not too young to figure that out. <laughs> they know it. They know it. So I saw a picture online. I actually have it here. It's a phrase that says, girls compete with each other. Women empower each other. That's a great romantic idea. I love that thought. But it is not the truth. <laughs> that is not true. This would suggest that your risk or your tendency to compare and to compete goes away with age. I do not think that that is accurate. I think it may get less with maturity, but I'm not sure maturity always goes with age sometimes. <laughs> um, so there's two sides to this coin. I think number one, especially for moms, especially, especially for moms of little girls, have you ever, and you don't have to raise your hand to this, have you ever found yourself saying something negative about your body and then realized your kid was listening? Have you ever stepped back and thought about what your little girl thinks about her body based on how you talk about yours? Oh, man, I can never lose any weight. This is so frustrating. I just wish I could fit into that dress that that girl has on. So your four-year-old girl hears that, and now she wants to fit into a dress that another girl has on and doesn't look the same. And I'm certainly not saying you're destroying your child's identity by saying something about whether you've lost weight or not, but they hear us. They hear what we have to say. Now, at the same token, they hear us when we speak positively about ourselves and each other. They know what it is to see encouragement. So I would say, if you're an encourager, your kids will learn to encourage. If you're a competitor, your kids will learn to compete. If you're one that tries to find a way to feel better than when you've been made to feel less than, your kids are going to do that too. So. Um, this can be problematic for us, but I, I want to say before we move on, just to dispel something that I feel like has come up in a lot of moms I know. Uh, this, is, this is the truth. Ready? Moms, you are the best mom to your kids. You're the one that God gave them to. He did it on purpose. 
He made a plan that you would be that child's mom. Dads, you're the dad to your kids. That does not mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean you won't mess something up. But it means God made you a family. And the, the easiest way for an enemy to come into families is to, for him to make us doubt the foundation of our family altogether, that we're supposed to be a family, right? Now, we can allow God to change us and make us better every single day, but we cannot allow the enemy to lie to us and say, somebody else could be doing this better than me. If somebody else could be doing it better, God would have made those kids somebody else's. And he didn't. He made them yours. And I would say this extends to the people in your family. Maybe you don't have kids of your own. Like me, I don't have any of my own kids, but I have a lot of kids, right? I know that God has made me a person to mother children around here, and I don't take that lightly because I know that God put that in my heart. But I know it's a heavy weight, and i got to listen every day to make sure that I do it well, and sometimes I don't. But that doesn't change the fact that God called me to this. And it doesn't change the fact that God made you your kid's mom or dad. Okay? So put that out of your heads. We don't have time for that. <laughs> um, why do we compare so much? Where does this all come from? So this is the part where you're not going to laugh and giggle at what I have to say because it's not nice. It's not. So ready? You can put your hate hats on if you want to. Um, Comparison, the root of all comparison that I can think of, I went through as much as I could, research-wise and Bible, the root of comparison comes down to fear. It comes down to the fact that what if I'm not loved? What if I'm not enough? A fear of failure, a fear of abandonment, a fear of being alone. All of these things sort of converge together to make us say, gosh, I wish I was that instead of this. I wish my life looked different, right? So I will also say that when we, have, when we live in a place of fear, we're basically asking the question, is God enough for me? And that question has sort of a hmm, ugly twin brother side of fear, which is, anybody want to guess? Jealousies, uh, that's good, but that's not what I was thinking. Pride. Now, fear is sometimes a much better option for us to think of than pride because fear makes us a victim of something. Pride doesn't. Pride is just there. And I think we all know that fear and pride together can really destroy the way you see yourself and the way that you see God, but there's hope for us when we have these things in our lives, and I have it. Let me tell you, God has battled these things in my life. I am not standing up here saying, you people have pride and fear in your hearts. Better fix it. That's not what I'm saying. Please do not hear that from me. I'm saying God has taught me so many times that fear is ineffective. Pride is, should have no place in my life because God is bigger and better than that. And there's hope for us when we struggle with fear. 1 John 4, 18. We're gonna, it's going to go up here. Um, this is one of my favorite verses because it gives us so much hope. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, what is it? Casts out fear. It doesn't just scooch in and sit beside it. It gets rid of it. There's no place for fear when love exists in your life because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now, the context of this in 1 John is actually talking about a new believer's understanding of judgment day. Right? So this isn't like fear that you might get bit by a squirrel today. This is like fear that at the end of it all, 
you're going to stand in front of Jesus and he's going to say, I never knew you. What they're, what, John, what they're saying in this verse is you don't have to fear that when you're grounding your foundation is in knowing whose you are and who you belong to. So if I don't have to fear judgment day, how many other things don't I have to fear? Because my God has already conquered those things, right? I don't want to be a person that fears where I'm going to end up. And if that's not a problem for me, then what, is, what else is there, right? All the things here are just, what does he say, dust to dust, right? What's in between dust? Well, our lives, I guess. But there's a lot more for us than fearing what's in front of us today or fearing what somebody thinks of us today or fearing where we might be judged or we might be rejected, right? There's a lot more for us. Um, in Psalms 34, I love this. It says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look at him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. There's a couple alls in there, which I really like. It's not he saved him out of the troubles that he didn't create himself. That's encouraging. <laughs> the troubles are mine. I built them. But God can still rescue me. He can still redeem that for me, right? Because his love casts out fear, I don't need to stand with shame on my face in front of my father and say, I need you. I can stand with boldness and enter the presence of God and say, I'm yours. You made me. I want to be who you've made me to be, and I've got many steps to go, but I'm yours, and I know who you are. So there's hope for us when we fear. Um, I have another picture that I want you to see. There's a lady named Lisa Bevere who speaks and writes books, and she's really great. So she wrote this phrase. I don't honestly know what book it's from, but a head full of fear has no room to dream. I really, really like that. So how many of you, anybody have a sort of a knack for remembering like song lyrics, silly facts, things like that? Well, I do. They stick in my head. I don't know why. You want to me to sing the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme? I got you. All front, front to back. I got the whole thing. But like in my head, I'm thinking, there's a lot of silly facts in there. Is there room for new stuff? I hope, like, am I going to remember when I meet a new person, will I know what their name is? Because I have all these song lyrics in my head. Let me assure you, physiologically, that's not how your brain works, so it's okay. But I love the concept, the comparison. A head full of fear has no room to dream. So I think of it like this. Fear takes up a lot of space. It's big, and it's ugly, and it's rude. And in my mind, it takes up a lot of real estate. But love can squeeze into a little teeny spot and just plant itself right there and make a home. And then what happens when love is there and fear's next to it? Can't stay here. And so when we allow the Lord to deposit the love of God, the true understanding that we're his in our hearts and our minds, now the fear, now the pride, now the is God enough can just find its way out. That's not a simple process, believe me. I'm not just saying you make this decision and all of a sudden you're perfect. That's not the way it goes. But when we give God room to establish his love in our lives, it changes the way that we see ourselves. It changes the way we see the world around us. And I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful for that. Um, okay, so we have this issue, we all do, of comparing ourselves and wishing we were something else. And how do we fix it? 
What do we do about it? So we find contentment. I have three ideas for how we can do that. Um, the first one is we let God transform our minds, right? So if all of this exists up here, then that's where we've got to go, right, to fix it. Um, so any of you familiar with Romans chapter 12? Yeah, the very beginning of that, I love, it talks about, he says, chap Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, Pinterest. <laughs> Thanks, Pinterest. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. So I had to learn this whole chapter of Romans when I was in school. I was probably in fourth grade or something. And I remember thinking, sober judgment, I don't know what that means, but okay, I'll say it. I mean, I had to say it back to my teacher, right? And in years later, I've thought and thought and thought about that. And you think of sober as like serious, right? I'm a very serious person. But I have since decided this doesn't mean serious. It means accurate judgment, right? So it, the verse before that says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, because that's obviously a problem for many of us, right? We, we contend on that sort of pride train sometimes. But I think God is also saying to us, don't think less of yourself than I do. I have a picture of you as the child that I made on purpose. So this sober judgment we're talking about means think of yourself the way I think of you. And in order to do that, we've got to let him transform our minds. How? <laughs> you can't just sit there and be like, and go. Oh, wait. I got a better signal over here. Hold on. Let me just... Done. I'm set. I just uploaded. That's not how it goes, right? It's not. It's by getting in the Word. It's by reading what He says about us every day. It's by talking to people that are wiser than you and hearing what they have to say and hearing them when they say, you wrong. That's not right. You're thinking backwards, <laughs> right? We have to trust that people have been before us in this process and listen to them. We've got to use their sober judgment when we haven't found ours yet. Let them speak truth to us. Let God speak to us. We had an amazing worship service last Sunday where God came and did absolutely whatever he wanted, right? The leadership of this church had a plan for that service, and it wasn't that Pastor Chris forgot to make a sermon, so he just said, keep going, keep doing music. That's not what happened. God came and met with us. And I guarantee you, if you were in this service and you were asking the Lord to come and meet with you, he met with you about something different than he met with you about because that's where you're at. So that's how he transforms our mind when we give him room to do that, right? Um, okay, so I, <laughs> I have this. You can laugh at this part. It's all right. So... <laughs> I, I was watching some, you ever, have you ever watched a video on YouTube or something and then there's another video on the right hand side and you're like, oh, that's probably, I'll watch that. And now it's an hour later and you're like 10 miles into this line of YouTube videos. You can't get out. You don't know like how you got to this one. So that's how I ended up seeing this video. But it actually was so appropriate for this, what we're talking about. So basically what I'm saying is let God transform your mind so that you're okay with being who you are. So this is a dog. This isn't finished, so you don't need to know. Now watch this.
Keep in mind, he's supposed to do what the German Shepherd did, which is run straight down the red path. <laughs> oh, there's food up there. I'm going <laughs> to... You're taking a long time there, buddy. This is supposed to be like a 10 second run, right? And they have all these little distractions along the way for the dog to run past. And he just isn't having it. He, he's, but why would I stop? I mean, there's a food here. There's a toy over there. Hold on, I didn't finish my sausage yet. I'll take it with me. That's all right. We'll just take it with us. This, we'll, we'll keep going, but hang on. I'm not done yet, right? Now they drag him by the collar off this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. But what I see in this, this golden retriever made no attempts to be a German Shepherd. He knows who he is. He is a dog that is meant to eat and play and get distracted. He is not a guard dog. He will guard your sausage for about a second, and then he's done. He's gone. Right? The German Shepherd did what he does. He was eye on the prize, straight down the line. There is no stopping. I know my goal. Well, the Golden Retriever knew his goal. It was have the most fun I can possibly have every second of my life. Right? So I'm not saying be irresponsible in your life. I'm not saying blow off your responsibility. I'm saying be who God made you to be. Don't compare yourself to that family over there and assume that that's what you're supposed to be if God made you this. If God gave you this set of gifts, use them. <laughs> the whole passage after what I read you in Romans 12 talks about the gifts that he gives us in the body of Christ and that we're all different. If you're a preacher, go preach, he says. If you have the gift of prophecy, go prophesy. If you have the gift of service, go serve. Don't be a golden retriever if you're a German shepherd, and don't be a German shepherd if you're a golden retriever. It doesn't work. So we're going to let God transform our minds to be who we are. The second thing I think is important, and let me tell you, this is a lesson from my own life. Do not run from the things that God is doing. So those who know me well know that I went through several seasons of God trying to reach something in my life to change it and fix it, and I desperately needed that, and I was not interested. <laughs> I was not the least bit interested in God working at something that was painful in my life. Because I didn't want to do that. I thought, I'm good. I've got a system here. Don't get in the way of my system. But I was not being the person God called me to be when I was living at the edge of understanding the real love of God or living on the edge of understanding the identity that he's given me instead of the lies of the enemy. So <laughs> I think that it's easy for us sometimes to think of God as, this thing that we can tap into when we want something. But I kind of think of God a little bit more like a very patient, very well-trained kindergarten teacher who stands at the front of the class, hand is raised. That means everybody quiet. Nobody's quiet. Everybody's talking. Somebody's eating their own hair. I don't know. They're coloring on the table, right? And the teacher just says, I'll wait. I've got time. It's your recess you're missing. That's all right. I'll wait. And he doesn't do it sassy, and he doesn't do it in a nasty, I'm better than you way. He says, I know what you need, and I've got it. So I'll wait. You want to come back around this mountain a couple times? I'll be here. But I have something that you need. I have a way to transform your mind so that you have 
an accurate picture of who I am and who you are in me, and I've, I'm, I'll wait. You're going to get it, but you've got to ask for it, and you've got to be ready to receive what I have for you. And sometimes that teaching, that lesson in our lives is not comfortable. It's hard, and it's painful, and it's us letting him undo something that we've learned and repeated in our lives over and over and over, right? If you grew up in a home that wasn't very healthy, you've got maybe a fairly broken picture of what the love of God might look like. And for him to fix that, we've got to unlearn some things. How many know it's hard to unlearn something you know, right? Habits are difficult to break, but the grace of God is there. It is there when we allow him to do the things that he knows we need. Um, so there's a couple, a couple verses I want to read to you that I, I think are encouraging in this way, that this doesn't have to be a constant uphill battle, right? So Philippians 1.6, being confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I used to read that and be like, oh my gosh, this is going to take until Jesus comes back to fix this? I, I can't do that, <laughs> right? But I don't think that's what this means. I think this is God saying, I am persistent and I will pursue you in the things that you need as long as you're on this earth until Jesus comes back. You've got time, but don't wait don't take until Jesus comes back to let him come and fix the way you see yourself or fix the way you know his love. It doesn't have to take that long, my friends. It does not. It can, and he will, but it doesn't have to, right? In Joshua 1.5, we know this story of Joshua following in the steps of Moses, who did some amazing things, even though he was a little timid about it. So Joshua has some pretty big shoes to fill, I would say, right? He probably knows he's got stuff that's not fixed and ready yet, but here he is up to bat to lead all of the children of Israel now. And his first words to God, I would think, were like, ah, ah, I gotta go, <laughs> right? He wasn't ready. He didn't feel like he had all the things in place to be able to lead people well. And God says to him, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. He promises Joshua that, you know how Moses is like your guy and you think you'll never be as good as him? I was with him. I was with Moses. It wasn't just Moses, it was me and Moses. We're in it together. I've got you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And Romans 8, 38 and 39, my very favorite verses in the whole Bible. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or demons or the present or the future or any powers, nor height or depth or anything in all of creation will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He gives us a lot of options of things in there that will not separate us from the love of Jesus. And he uses all opposites, if you didn't notice that to include everything in between, right? He gives us a spectrum in lots of different planes so that however you learn from him, you'll figure out that there is literally nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God. If that's true, and if he will continue to pursue us to transform our minds, that's a pretty safe bet that we can trust him, right? Now, I, I want to say something to you, and I am going to preface it by saying this is an incredibly arrogant thing for me to say. Ready? God will always prove himself worthy of our trust. 
And I say it's arrogant because the fact that I would even have to say that says in my mind that I've thought otherwise at some times in my life. But it's true, and I've repented for that. I feel like there have been times in my life where I said, God, you're good at things, but I'll handle this one. <laughs> right? I'm like, well, who says things like that to God? Come on. But it's true that he will always, always prove himself worthy of our trust. You never have to wonder whether it's worth taking the leap to trust that he'll do what he says he'll do. He always will, every single time. And so I don't doubt that he'll never leave me or forsake me. I don't doubt that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And so I can translate that into when I have fear of rejection, I don't doubt that even if people fail me, even if things come that hurt me, my God will never leave me or forsake me. There is incredible security there, which means the fear that goes behind everything else in my life can't stay. There's no place for it. Perfect love casts out fear, right? So I think we've talked about a couple things that we can do. We're going to let God transform our minds. We're going to choose to let him do the things he wants to do instead of running away. And the big, big thing that I think is important, and this is where it comes back to us and moms, we're going to run this race, but we're going to do it together, right? We are not one-man bands out here <laughs> trying to figure out the world and trying to ask God to fix us. We are a, a team of people pursuing God together, whether it's in your family, a small circle, if it's in this family, a bigger community in church, whether it's in this town or the world, or we can go to the universe if you want to, we are people pursuing God together. So, how many of you have ever, um, how many of you would call yourselves competitive? Are you, you can raise your hand, you're not going to get in trouble. It's all right. Okay, I got a couple, fine. Okay, when you play Monopoly, you better win, right? You're going to have all the houses and the hotels and all the, the cards and the things, right? So sometimes, I think when I was growing up and even for years recently, I felt like Christianity was almost a race against each other right? Who can be the best Christian? And Paul, in many of his letters, talks about the race, right? We're going to run the race. We're going to complete the race, all these things. And in my mind, I'm a very type A, organized, I'm a list maker kind of person, right? I think race, win. Okay. So I guess that can be true. But recently, and especially in preparing for this message, I've, the Lord's really sort of turned me on my head in this way that, um, well, let's read it. In Hebrews 12, the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 12. I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I like it a lot. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So I see no reference to an individual you anywhere in that whole passage. It's all us. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. <laughs> There's a lot of us in this team together when he's talking about this race that we're running. And so it occurred to me that this race is not you versus me. It's not even me versus me, right? This is us versus an enemy out to destroy our soul. This is us versus the broken identities that that enemy has tried to put on us. This is us versus sin. 
And let me just tell you something that it is a great encouragement to me that I'm not alone in that race. It's not worth it. I gain absolutely nothing in keeping with the race analogy to be excited when you trip up because now I've gained a couple seconds on your time. Right? That's how a regular race works. But this is not that kind of race. This is not the race where I am like, ah, oh, you tripped, see ya. I'm going, I'm winning. This is the race where I say, we've got to cross that finish line together, and you tripped because your shoelaces were untied. So I'm going to stop, and I'm going to get down and help you untangle that sin that so easily trips us up, like he talks about. Because you know what? About 100 yards from now, my shoelaces are going to get tangled. And I don't want to run by myself and be the only one that can untangle them. I want you with me. We untied your laces a while ago. That guy up there, his laces have been pretty good, but he might trip. Who knows? We're in it together. We are in it together. So moms, when you think that people are looking at you and saying you ought to do better, please don't. Please look at us and say, help me. <laughs> My kid's screaming in Walmart. I don't know what to do. We're with you. This family of people is with you. Dads, when you don't know how to figure out something in your family, you're trying to figure out how to address the situation with your kids or in your marriage or in your job or in the way that you interact with the Lord, we're with you. This is not a thing where you better be perfect or don't show up because that's not why we're here. We are here to run the race together. Josh, you can go ahead and come on up if you want to. So our plan today was let the kids honor their moms and then throw you into the fire about how you're so proud. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Our plan today really is to tell you that we're with you and to encourage you, whether you're a mom or a dad or a brother, sister, daughter, whoever you are, this is not just for moms on Mother's Day. This is for us as a family to say we're in it together. If fear trips you up, we're with you, and God has freedom for you in that. If pride is an issue for you and you know that, Tell us. Let us help you. Let us pray with you and seek the Lord for you and believe that he'll transform your mind in that area. If you feel insecure about who you are or the way that you're perceived or the way you mother or father or parent, we're with you, and we believe that God has freedom for those things. So we're going to do some worship. This first song is um, No Longer Slaves. We've done this song a number of times, but I love the middle part of the song because he says, you split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. <laughs> 